1: TL Talk Radio Season Six, Episode Six. Welcome to Season Six, Episode Six of TL Talk Radio. I'm Lynn funy Hatton. And I'm
2: Randy Ziganfoos. Today we're speaking with Eugene Eric Kim. Eugene is a collaboration coach, trainer, and designer focused on helping change makers practice the skills they need to work effectively in groups. He spent almost two decades helping groups learn how to come alive and collaborate more skillfully together. He's worked with C-level business leaders and social activists, rocket scientists and spies, billionaires and hackers, foundations and farmers. His work has taken him to nine countries across five different continents.
1: So welcome to the show, Eugene.
3: Thank you, Lynn. Thanks for having me.
1: Our pleasure. Let's get the conversation started. Can you share with us a personal story about the work that you do now in regards to building group collaboration skills and how you got connected to that work?
3: Well, I I got started in this business pretty much by accident. I was, um, this started almost 20 years ago now. I was um, in the Bay Area in my early 20s, and I thought I wanted to start a tech company. That was what brought me to the Bay Area. That was something that I was really passionate about and, and really found fascinating for a lot of reasons. And I was fortunate to have exposure to a lot of interesting people and a lot of just fascinating ideas But what I was finding was that um, none of the work was compelling to me. It was all interesting, but there was something missing. And it took me several years to figure out exactly what it was. And I was really fortunate to have a a mentor in the business. His name is Doug Engelbart. Uh, He was 50 years older than me. And uh, he really just inspired me and helped me understand that thing that was missing for me. And the thing that was missing was purpose. It was this idea that whatever work I wanted to do um, had to have some kind of meaningful impact on the world and it had to feel meaningful to me. And so I was really fortunate to, to realize this at a relatively early age in my, in my mid twenties um, and to also recognize that part of what compelled me and felt meaningful to me was this idea of being able to help groups come alive and collaborate more effectively. Um, I was really fortunate to have several experiences when I was younger um, with like really good collaboration, which I think is unfortunately pretty rare for people just in general. And uh, one of those stories was just in team sports. Um, I really loved to play sports as a kid, and I was also like pretty bad at them. And. <laughs> I think that actually helped form my my viewpoint about collaboration in important ways. Because when you really love something and when you're bad at it, you you desperately want to be able to contribute. And what you can find in team sports is that there are ways to contribute. You don't have to be the stars. There's lots of different roles. And when you play that role, and when everyone else is playing that role, and when everything is flowing, everybody feels great. It's so much better for everybody, even for the stars. And so I think that kind of experience really shaped how I felt about collaboration in general and and what the goal should be in terms of lifting up other groups. And I think it really shaped my views on leadership and what it meant to do and to work in groups when you were Good at whatever it was you were trying to do and how you could see other people playing roles and how you could support them in that. So that's basically um, how it all sort of happened to fall in place. And that, that's how I got started.
1: I'm connecting to the Simon Sinek book that we shared with teachers a couple of years ago, Together is Better. I he- mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm hearing that sort of um, phrase resonate with what you're sharing, Eugene. Thanks. Yeah, for
3: sure. For sure.
2: So I, I love the the part of your story, like you weren't you weren't satisfied you weren't settled until you found your purpose and found something that was fulfilling to you too and i there's just so many people out there that are doing work that they don't find fulfilling and are just sort of satisfied with that And i just think that's awesome that you just weren't going to settle
3: yeah i probably some of it had to do with personality i'm pretty stubborn <laughs> if, if i'm not that fun of the thing so it, it helps be that way
1: or persistent or resilient or having grit, or any of those other words right
3: better way of putting it thank you for that
2: so uh the way that we actually got connected to you eugene was through your site called faster than 20 so take a moment give us an overview of what you have on that site and what you're thinking is behind the name and how it's connected to the work that you do
3: Sure. So the way the name came up, it was in a lot of ways inspired by my mentor, Doug Engelbart, who was really concerned about the challenges that we were facing as a society. And what he basically said when he he first started formulating these ideas in the 1950s, he noticed that because the world was getting more complex, our problems were basically scaling faster than our ability to solve them. So if you take any essential challenge, and you imagine how difficult it was to solve it back then, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years later, the problem was gonna be orders of magnitude more difficult. And so if we as society didn't become orders of magnitude smarter collectively at solving problems, we just weren't gonna be able to address them at all and things were just gonna crane off a cliff. So when I was a college student, I I studied history of science and in history of science, you know, one of the forebears, the pioneers of that field is this guy named Thomas Kuhn, who coined this this term paradigms Mm -hmm. when talking about revolutions, right? Revolutions, ways that we as society completely changed our minds about things. And in his book, *Structure of Scientific Revolutions, it's, um, it's sort of a classic book in the history of science. One of my favorite parts of the book is this little footnote, right? in the middle of the book. So he's going and he's espousing these theories and these frameworks about how people essentially change their minds at scale. And in this little footnote, almost in passing, he says, you know, at the end of the day, it may just be that one set of people die and the next generation comes and takes their place. And that's how people change their mind. So I think there's a lot of truth in that. And if you actually look at social movements, you'll find that often it takes a generation at least for us to be able to solve those problems. But if what Doug Engelbart says is true, and I think there's no question that it's true, and we're seeing that today, we have to be able to address these problems faster than a single generation, which is about 20 years. So that's where the name comes from, faster than 20.
1: On the website, Faster Than 20, you share a lot of ideas about teams and um, teams working effectively with each other and teams being high-performing. And it could be a group or a specific team. And you use an analogy um, of rowers. So talk to us a little bit about what you mean by high-performing teams or groups.
3: Well, I told you this story about my own experiences with, um, with team sports early on that I think were pretty foundational for me. And I think one of the interesting things in in business or in any kind of like knowledge related field that people are in, um, we forget that our experiences in groups, whether it's in our personal lives, in our family lives or whatever, what makes us effective in those groups are the same things that make us effective in business. And so if you imagine a team of rowers, well, what makes a rowing team really good at rowing? Um, well, there's a lot of things. So, number one, there has to be alignment. So, rowers have to agree on where they're going to row. They have to agree on what the different roles people are going to play. Um, they have to agree on what their overall strategies are going to be. Um, there's things like maintenance. So, if you're not taking care of your equipment, you're going to sink. You're not going to be able to be successful. Um, There are things like practice. Practice is super important. So even the best rowers in the world, they don't start off being world class right from the beginning. You know, all these things that I'm talking about, they sound like they're pretty obvious, right? Anyone who has any experience in anything like this before will just sort of nod their heads and say, of course, all of those things are important. Well, those things are important in the workplace also. And I think what's unfortunate and what's challenging is that when we look at how people collaborate in the workplace, oftentimes, they set aside those other things. So how often, I guess this is a question I would ask um, Randy and Lynn, or the two of you, um, how often do you feel like you get an opportunity to practice the skills that you think are important in your work, your everyday work?
1: I'm glad you didn't ask any rowing questions because <laughs> I don't think either one of us could answer the rowing question. <laughs>
3: I have a rower at home.
2: <laughs>
1: oh, there you go. I don't go. think that counts. But it's just
2: one. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of um, opportunities to practice the things that we mm-hmm. want to see uh, in those in our learning community, we, we tr- that's definitely something that's in the forefront of, um, mm. you know, for example, the podcast. We're practicing being learners, inquirers. Uh, being curious, mm. so I think we have some examples. That's yeah. it's definitely something we think about.
1: Yeah, I think I think we often um, practice and then reflect ourselves as critical friends and have conversations about, you know, how did that go or what worked well. Um, so, you know, for example, our our team is right now writing goals. And we sat down together and we look at the goals and we think critically about those goals and how will they be measured and what deliverables might be, might lead to the outcomes that we're looking for and how do they connect to our, our vision, our profile of a graduate and our learning beliefs. So through our collaboration and our um, ability to work effectively with each other, we do have opportunity to practice some of those skills, um, and as Randy mentioned, the, the podcasting is certainly another opportunity, but it's it's definitely something that we would benefit from being more intentional about.
3: Well, I think as I was saying um, before we started this conversation, the fact that you two actually take the time to have done like 300 episodes of this is extraordinary. And that's not even just counting the amount of time you're actually talking to people, but it's all the preparation that you're doing, all the thinking about it and so forth. And I think it's not only extraordinary, but it's really rare. People don't necessarily take the time to do that because they feel like, well, we have to, quote unquote, do the work. You have to do both, right? Um, One of the things that really strikes me about high performance athletics or musicians or other fields where we can look at them and say, wow, these people are really performing um, exceptionally well, is that if you look at that ratio of practice to performance, the performance part of their job might be 10% of their work, and it's probably a lot less than that. So if we think about our own ratios in in our everyday workplace, um, even people who are practicing on a regular basis, and I would include myself in that conversation, like our ratios are nowhere close to 90 to 10. Um, My ratio might be more like 30, 70 practice to performance. And so there's a lot more work that we could do in that regard in terms of increasing our ratios if, in fact, what we care about is high performance.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's interesting. I never yeah. never thought about that well, sort of way of slicing it.
1: We'll have a conversation about that when we get finished talking with you. <laughs> the two of us, <laughs> yes. yes.
2: All good. If our listeners haven't been to the website, go to fasterthan20.com and uh, you'll see a load of resources. It's just full of resources and lots of different um, places to explore. And one of the the places I thought was interesting was in the toolkit section and saw this uh, section on working agreements. So talk to us a little bit about that, Eugene, and why is that important?
3: Well, when we're working together in groups, and a group could be as small as one other person. There's always some sort of agreement that's um, that's happening, right, in terms of how we're doing our work. So, for example, I'm watching or I'm listening to you and Lynn work together right now and there's clear roles that are happening, there are things that are happening behind the scenes. So some number of those probably happened as a result of like an actual conversation, an actual agreement. We're saying, okay, you do this, I do this, mm-hmm. right? Um, and. S- some of those undoubtedly happened because like, they just emerged and maybe they work, maybe they don't, but um, that's what's going on. There are all these agreements that are basically happening when we work together. Um, some of them are explicit agreements. Oftentimes, a lot of them are implicit. And the challenge with implicit agreements is that we might be moving along and thinking that everything is OK, whereas the other person on the other side of that quote unquote agreement Um, may be feeling exactly the opposite. They may feel resentful about how things are operating. They may feel like disappointed um, for whatever reason. And what I find is that so many um, problems that we have when, um, when groups are trying to collaborate with each other is a lack of specific conversation about how people wanna work together. And so the idea behind having a working agreements conversation is to basically take the time on a regular basis to check in and to basically have the concrete conversation about, okay, what's been working well, what hasn't been working well, and what kind of agreements do we want to make? I think uh, a classic example of this for a lot of groups is just how do you want to email together, or how do you want to communicate with each other, especially in this day and age of technology and remote working and that sort of thing. Um, I know people who hate the phone. They don't want to talk on the phone for whatever reason. and then I know people I who-
1: have that problem.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so I that's do. good to know. Okay, well, there you go, so- um...
2: I couldn't tell you my office extension if you asked me. <laughs> I'm really not sure which one it is because I so, very
3: rarely use it. What do you prefer, Randy? Do you like to, when you're communicating with colleagues, is it face-to-face, is it email, text message? Yeah,
2: certainly face-to-face, then probably email, then probably text, yeah. But hardly, I hardly ever get a phone call.
3: Nice. And now about you, Lynn. What's your hierarchy of communication preference? Mm,
1: I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Pro- probably face to face, and then a phone call. I think I'm more likely to pick up the phone Is, or you know, cell it's phone a... typically. I, I I do know my extension, but nobody else calls it. <laughs>
2: Although we we talk a lot on the cell phone.
1: Yeah.
3: Mm. And that's okay with you, Randy. Yeah, that's okay. On the that's phones. okay. But
2: I just don't like this thing phone sitting here. Mm.
1: He does get quiet time, though, on the way home. I give him five minutes before I call.
3: Well, you know, I mean, in all seriousness, that stuff matters, right? That's part of our working agreement. That is totally a working agreement. And have you ever explicitly made that agreement, or is it just something that naturally just kind of came about?
2: I I think it probably naturally came about, but then we were explicit about it.
3: Perfect. She, I mean, I think that's...
2: Lynn has great empathy and, and intuition, and she knows, like, I need that time. So we just had a, work, a day working together. So as we're driving off, I need my five minutes to have quiet time. I'm the introvert. She's the
1: extrovert. Mm, that, that's a I'm, yeah. I'm
2: mostly an introvert. And I'm an introvert in most situations because it is contextual.
3: Mm, for sure. For sure. I mean, I think that's such a great example of... When we talk about this notion of a working agreement, it's it's not a one off, right? Like you can sit down and you can say, how do you like to talk to people and you can come up and in five minutes find out that, okay, well, half your group likes talking on the phone and the other half likes doesn't like talking on the phone and you can make changes accordingly and basically um, get around a bunch of disagreements that way. But over time, you start learning the nuances of people, you start developing relationships with people, and so your agreements are going to evolve and you're going to hopefully improve if you actually take the time to do that. I think where things get hard when you're talking about working agreements with folks is when you talk about things like conflict. So everybody has a different relationship with conflict. People like to address it in different ways. And if people like addressing conflict in different ways, and you never actually have a conversation about how you as a group aspire to handle conflict, then people are just gonna do what feels most comfortable to them. And that's where you're gonna have, ironically enough, a lot more conflict. So being able to actually take the time on a regular basis to have these conversations, it's, it's so simple on the one hand, um, and yet very few groups actually do it.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Often it can be uncomfortable.
3: That's part of the problem. I think um, sometimes people don't wanna have those conversations because it is uncomfortable or they expect it to be uncomfortable. And it's what I was saying before, like if you have the first step conversation, right? If you just ask people what their communication preferences are, like those are simple, safe conversations that you could have that um, hopefully won't be uncomfortable, although who knows, you know? Um, and then it turns out, uh, then it comes down to practice as I was talking about before because the more you start having those easier conversations as stuff starts getting harder, you're developing relationships with people. You're getting into the habit of having these conversations. That's how you get good at this stuff. You have to be willing to be bad at it first, but if you don't do it at all, you're never going to get better.
1: Mm -hmm. Being vulnerable. So, so you also on um, the website and we were, we were like, once we started looking at this site, we're like, oh, did you see this? Did you see this? Um, mm. You have something called collaboration workouts. So can mm. you share with us an example or two of those collaboration workouts and how they might be used by a, a team looking to grow?
3: Sure. So um, my favorite exercise and really sort of the fundamental exercise of this whole uh, of this whole working out toolkit is uh, what I call the, um, the one minute drill. And so the one minute drill is essentially a, uh, it's a listening drill. And the idea is uh, it only takes two people to do, although you can do it with more than two people. And you basically start and you have one minute and um, you ask a question. And one person plays a role of listener and the other person plays a role of talker. The talker has one minute to answer the question. The listener does nothing but listen. And then when that one minute is up, the listener reflects back on it reflects back what he or she heard um, the talker say. And the talker gives you a score, a score between one or five, based on how well you basically heard what that person said. And once you get that feedback, you actually have the chance to, um, to try it again and to see if you can improve your score. So you do that and then you switch sides. So then the listener becomes a talker and, and uh, you repeat the exercise.
1: So is it what the person said or what the person intended to say?
3: Oh, well, see, that's one of the reasons <laughs> I love this exercise so much, right? Listening is hard and listening is so complicated. And part of what makes listening hard is that it actually is a two-way street. And sometimes when we are communicating with someone and we're saying, I just want to, you to listen, or I just want you to hear me, what you are saying is not necessarily what you want the other person to hear. <laughs> um, so I've, I've done this exercise. You know, Part of what I think is important for, for all these workouts is if I'm going to be offering them to people, I need to be doing them myself. I need to be practicing them and seeing if they're worthwhile. I consider myself to be a, a pretty good listener on average. Um, and I continue to be struck when I do this really simple exercise of, of how often things come up where I'm not being skillful at listening. So one of the things um, that came up for me relatively list, uh, recently was that I was um, talking to a colleague of mine, someone who I've known for almost 10 years and I've worked really closely with. And we were just doing this exercise for fun. We weren't doing it. You know, we weren't working on a project at the time. So there were no like weird dynamics or anything we were trying to work through. And um, she had a minute to talk. She she talked for a minute. I reflected back what I heard. And she gave me like a three out of five.
1: Ouch.
3: I know, pretty harsh, right? (laughs) And so I said, okay, what didn't I hear? And she said, well, you pretty much exactly reflected the content of what I said but you didn't reflect back how I was feeling. And it was actually like really helpful for me to experience that because I realized I was having some difficulties, um, with some colleagues on another project around communication. And I realized what was happening was I was actually reflecting back to my other colleagues, what I was hearing them say, but I wasn't acknowledging how they were feeling. And that's what they were looking for in those moments. Mm. And so I think that's part of the complexity of all of these exercises and all of our everyday interactions. And these like very simple drills when you do them and when you repeat them over and over and over again, it really helps you understand these nuances.
1: I'm, I'm connecting to Difficult Conversations, the book, and thinking of if you have you read that book?
3: I haven't read it now. Okay,
1: thinking about the conversation, but also how both people feel as they're having the conversation. So interesting yeah. perspective.
2: So we've gotten lots of very interesting, thought-provoking content here from Eugene during our conversation. And uh, I'm sure in the next set of questions, which we call our lightning round questions, we're going to ask for some short answers from you, which I'm sure are going to give our listeners uh, even More interesting things to think about. So, our first question Who is one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about developing teams?
3: So, I'm going to offer some meta, a meta answer here. Um, What I would say is like reach out to someone you know who you think works really well together with other people. I think one of the problems in collaboration is like the over gurufication of it. Mm. Collaboration is something we do every day. We're social animals. There are people all around us who are really good at it. Start with the people you know.
2: Okay. If you were recommending one book to our listeners, what would it be?
3: I really like this book by Atul Gawande called Better. It is about high performance. And um, he's a surgeon by background. And he talks a lot about surgery. And he talks a lot about um, just practice and fundamental things and it's a really interesting well-written and thin book which i also like about it so i'd recommend that one
2: so how do you keep learning what people resources or online resources do you continue to connect with
3: i think going back to my answer to the first question i mean certainly i have a lot of colleagues who who i talk to on a regular basis i try to practice with i try to learn from um, and that's been a, a hugely important part of my just professional career. Um, but then I think the other thing that's really important is to reach out beyond your little circle to constantly look at other fields. So for me, I'm constantly, I love sports. So I'm constantly reading about sports. Um, I am to love food and cooking and as it turns out, um, kitchen chefs. Like there's, there's all sorts of interesting dynamics that happen in in kitchens that are interesting. Um, But also like there's, there's stuff around craft and mastery that I think apply to any field. So those are things that I try to do.
1: All right. Thanks for sharing those resources and we'll uh, list them in the show notes. So last question, Eugene, what's next for you? What are you working on now that you'd like to share with our listeners?
3: I'm really focused on trying to provide infrastructure and services that will support people in practice. So I kind of made allusions to this before, like I think we're always looking for the expert to, to help us with stuff. And things like collaboration, I don't think it makes that much sense. We can obviously learn from people who are really experienced, but at the end of the day, what's going to actually help me practice these skills and so, uh, one of the things that I've been experimenting with a lot is like, what are the programs that um, that are helpful for people uh, to actually practice? So, what is the equivalent of the the weekly workout class that you might go to, or what is the equivalent of the the boot camp that you might go to on a regular basis to make sure you run and do whatever you know working out that you do? Um, and then I think another important aspect of, of how to do it is I take everything that I develop and I put it out in the public domain. And so what that means is that, uh, there's no intellectual property associated with it. You could do whatever you want. You could practice it yourself. You could resell it without ever mentioning my name. It's really important for me that the practices that actually work get out there as broadly as possible and that people actually do them. Because at the end of the day, that's what I care about, people getting better at collaboration.
1: Thank you so much for uh, joining us today, Eugene, and for our listeners to learn more about Eugene's work. You'll see some links in the show notes, including a link to the books he mentioned, um, so that you can take a look and uh, learn more. Each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking conversation and reflection. This episode's question, how might you use the resources on Faster Than 20 to develop your team? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season six, episode six. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with another conversation featuring an innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Eugene.
3: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Take care, Eugene. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.